Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Paris. I am host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I am delighted to have as my guest today, Tim Kohler. He is the uh, author, along with Mark Goodhart and David Wessels, of uh, Valuation, Measuring and Managing the Value of Companies. This is the seventh edition. Yes, seventh edition of this book. It's just come out from Wiley. First published in 1990, a new version available now. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for for, uh, being a guest on the show. Thank you, Daniel. I'm happy to be here. Uh, You know, there aren't many books uh, that go through seven editions. As a historian, myself who who works in the capital markets, I just couldn't resist the notion of going through the history of this and asking you to you know, uh, highlight what you see as the key changes, not between six and seven necessarily, and just an effort to to support sales, but uh, really from one through seven, not every line item, but but the main arc of trajectory, the audience changes, the emphasis changes, and, and you know, how you've seen this uh, experiment work out over a 30-year period. Uh, well, thank you, Daniel. Um, the, the probably worth sort of stepping back to why we wrote the book in the first place. Um, back in uh, the late 1980s, uh, the world or, or the world of finance was in some ways similar to today, where back then we had what were called corporate raiders who were going after undermanaged companies. Uh, now we have uh, activist investors who sort of do the same thing. Back then, the raiders would actually try to take over the company and then change what the company was doing. Um, and as a consulting firm, uh, we felt it was important for McKinsey to be involved in those important strategic decisions for our clients as to sort of how to deal with raters. And evaluation is an important part of that. How, would, how much is a company worth? How do you maximize value? Uh, so that's when we started our corporate finance practice. And um, when we started to do this, we realized that there wasn't sort of a standard way of doing things. Uh, and we wanted our, all our consultants to be doing the financial analysis and the valuation the same way. There wasn't a, a book that did that to our satisfaction. So we decided to write uh, an internal handbook for McKinsey consultants. It was in a three-ring binder. Uh, and that's what we did to, to get started. Um, someone suggested that we show it to some publishers. They liked it. Um, and um, we, so we turned it into a real book. Uh, and that's how it all got started. Um, what's interesting is if you look at the first edition and the seventh, seventh edition, the underlying principles have not changed at all. Uh, ultimately, and that's because they go back beyond, back beyond 30 years. Ultimately, the value of a company, as is the value of any investment, is a function of the cash flows that it generates. Uh, and the nice thing about a company is that you can disaggregate those cash flows into how fast a company is growing, its revenue growth, and what kind of return on capital it earns. So that carries out, that that concept carries through all the additions. The other concept that carries through all the additions is that what ultimately matters is the long-term value creation for a company. You can fool the market by pumping up your earnings in the short term. Uh, But in the end, uh, we think companies should focus on value creation for the long term. And that's a theme that's become much more popular these days. But we've been talking about that ever since. What's changed in the book over the 30 years is 
Um, one is we try to always make the book relevant to the historical context. Uh, so right now uh, in the book, for example, there is a new chapter on ESG, which is an important topic uh, that, you know, with the business roundtable making its pronouncement last year. Uh, there's a chapter on digital. Companies are trying to figure out, well, what does digital mean for them? What should they be doing? Uh, there is some more information on uh, more thoughts on corporate purpose and how that relates to value creation. And then finally, uh, one of the frustrations that many large companies have or many companies of any size is their inability to translate strategy into action through adequate resource allocation in terms of where do they actually put their spending they don't they don't the planning systems typically uh, don't uh, get it put it in the right places and, and it creates a lot of frustration so we've reflected a lot of that based on our consulting work and our research in the in the new book in addition to that uh, we there's always changes in accounting rules and tax rules uh, that we have to reflect uh, and in addition and, and finally we find that you know, we want to have cases, case studies. Or the, the book is full of case studies, uh, and you know, people can enjoy a case that they that's a little more recent than something that's thirty years old. Uh, so we're always updating the cases to make them more relevant. What's going on in the world? And there's a lot of numerical analysis, statistical analysis, where we use to back up our points, and we update that every time as well. So the fundamentals stay the same. The cases, the examples, the external environment; those are all the things that change with each edition. So, you know, it's very clear on uh, pretty much on every page that uh, throughout you have planted the flag. And as you say, constants through through the 30 years and those constants, which I want to highlight again, you mentioned them, but uh, the incremental ROIC plus growth on one hand and then kind of a second constant is how you measure that. It's a a, 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 a robust ECF with a uh, uh, double check with something called economic profit which we can get to in a moment. And they are constants throughout. What was fascinating to me, and again, I'm I'm a practitioner in the field as well, and I am uh, bombarded with valuation metrics and uh, determinations of what is important uh, all the time by by vendors and by companies themselves. And, you know, I have to laugh that, you know, if you torture the statistics enough, you can get them to confess to anything. Uh, You have, as you said, been kind of tried and true on, on incremental ROIC and growth. You do highlight other you know, measure or generators of value and why they might be uh, second best to to yours. But I think in in a world, particularly the public equity world, but also just general corporate world, where there are so many um, potential measures of value, I, I think it's worth, without getting too much in the math, and I do want to tell readers, although, you know, there's an appendix with a lot of formulas, the actual text itself goes pretty smoothly. And this is for a, a book uh, on on corporate valuation that's uh, many hundreds of pages long, it is relatively lightly written. So I congratulate you and your co-authors on that. And it, it is not uh, not formula heavy. There are formulas, but it is not formula heavy. But let, let's circle back on uh, why uh, incremental ROIC, positive ROIC plus growth is is your the, the message that you're communicating to your clients as the key driver of value uh, compared to so many other uh, concepts that statistically can be generated and are every day, certainly on Wall Street and to some extent even on corporate Main Street. Yes, well, the 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 the, the, the alternative that most people point to is some measure of earnings, right? whether it's net income or earnings per share or EBITDA. 
and they look at saying, well, the company creates value by uh, how fast they grow their earnings uh, by any of those measures. Um, and what we show in the book, and, and this is just math, is that different companies have to invest different amounts of capital back into the business in order to achieve that earnings growth. So you'll have, let me just give you two exam, an, a, an example of two companies that we can compare. Uh, if you had invested a dollar in Costco 20 years ago or a dollar in Brown Foreman, Brown Foreman is the owner of Jack Daniels, um, that dollar over about a 20-year period would have grown, if you add together uh, share price appreciation plus dividends, to about $19. So both investments would have paid off the same if you're a shareholder. And yet Brown Form, excuse me, let Costco grew at about 50% faster rate than, than Brown Foreman. And yet the value creation is the same. And the reason that the value creation is the same is because Brown Foreman, because of its strong brand names, earns about a 30% return on capital, while Costco earns a, a low teens return on capital. So Costco is a company that's growing at a very fast rate, about 11% a year over that period of time. So very healthy. But because it earns a, about a 12 or 13% return on capital, the way the math works is that you have to put a lot of yet earnings back into the business in order to achieve that growth. Brown Foreman, on the other hand, growing at a low rate and earning a very high return on capital doesn't have to reinvest very much. And as a result, the two companies, relative to their starting point, both of them generate about the same amount of cash flow over that period of time, and that's why they create approximately the same amount of value. So it's, it's, it, it really boils down to the mathematics of, uh, of, of, of cash flows, uh, and that you know mathematically we can show that it's the combination of the incremental return on capital and the growth rate of the company that ultimately drives those cash flows. And that's also- Over longer measurement. Pardon me? Over longer measurement periods. Over, over, over a long period of time. Yeah, obviously over a long period of time, yes. Uh, uh, and, and that's also why earnings by itself is not a sufficient measure. Because if I know a company's earnings or its earnings growth, but I don't know its return on capital, I don't know how much it has to invest in order to achieve that earnings growth. And you could easily see situations where companies are uh, growing earnings but aren't creating a lot of value because they have to invest so much capital to achieve that. And in fact, if you think about two common concepts, you know, people often talk about growth stocks and value stocks, right? As if growth stocks grow, you would think that growth stocks would grow faster. When in fact, if you look, you'll find that most growth companies that are classified as growth stocks while some of them are growing faster, some of them have modest growth, but very high returns on capital. And the reason is, is that growth stocks are often classified as growth stocks because they have high price earnings ratios or high market to book ratios. And a company can have a high price earnings ratio or a high market to book ratio, either because it's growing fast or because it earns a high return on capital or both. That's why you see a lot of package, consumer packaged goods companies with very modest growth, uh, but very high returns on capital, showing yeah. up because they, they show up as in the in the growth index. Uh, surprisingly, this is, uh, David, they're not growing very fast. 
dated in- information, but when I was working my way through the thickets of the industry, the tobacco companies were often in the growth industries. And it's not because uh, it's exactly for the reason that you were describing their returns on capital were extraordinarily high, exactly. even as their revenue declined five to 10% a year. Exactly. Uh, it really, yeah. But they had a high PE ratio because they had such a high return on capital. And that's how they ended up in the growth index. So he, here you have kind of an assertion, and I, I'll, I'll phrase it my my words, not yours, an assertion of a truth, uh, of a fundamental truth, uh, at least based on your perspective and reasonably thought out over a 30-year period with a lot of uh, data behind it to argue it. And it's a, a communication that you make to your clients uh, regularly. This is how they should think about this. And then we run smack dab into the, to the real world. And uh, it's uh, chaos out there in terms of how companies are valued. And you, you have, uh, you know, by dint of experience or just observation, made a point, and it's, it's on pretty much every page of this book, mm-hmm. about the, the, the reason this truth is perhaps underappreciated and needs to be reminded mm-hmm. to corporate mm-hmm. clients and customers is, is the battle with near-termism. Uh, and all of the intellectual impediments to the clarity or truth that you're you're proposing, it, it's overwhelming. It's you almost have to find this needle in a haystack that you're offering, and the haystack is filled with the the clutter, the the, the noise of the market every single day. And so you're you are engaged in quite a struggle to push this notion through to your customers. At least that's how it feels upon reading this book. That it is. You know, three steps forward, two and three quarter steps back because the temptations for near termism, for using near term TSR, for boosting earnings through share purchase, repurchases, and any other trick of the trade, uh, excess leverage, and so forth, is constantly confronting the clarity that you're trying to offer. It seems almost like a, a it seems very frustrating to, for you to have to go to this battle every single day. Well, it, on the one hand, it is frustrating, uh, exactly as you laid out, because of the other ideas that are out there. Although over 30 years, I've seen an enormous change uh, in, 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 in the way companies think. I've seen an enormous change in uh, the way bankers uh, think and when they talk to their, to their companies. Not every banker, uh, but a lot more of them talk about discounted cash flows or talk about return on capital. Return on capital has become a much more important concept uh, that uh, companies have adopted, uh, bankers have adopted, uh, other consulting firms do the same, uh, talk about the same kind of things. If you look at our competitors, uh, they may call things different names, but they're essentially doing exactly the same thing. So it has, it has come a long ways. Uh, that said, I still face these battles. You know, I still face situations where a client says, you know, a banker came to them and said, you know, if you do a share repurchase, your EPS will go up and therefore your share price will go up. Uh, simply because of that, and and even if there's no fundamental change in the performance of the business, so we do still face that. Uh, so it is a, it is at the same time frustrating, but but on the other hand, uh, it is rewarding. Um, I'm I'm really lucky in that um, I you know it, I tip I show up to a new client meeting, you know, a large company recently, for example, and the CEO remembered using the book in business school. Um, I show up to a meeting and with a new client that I've never met before, and there's five people in the room, at least one of them has used our book somewhere in the last 30 years, right? I went to do a presentation in Hong Kong uh, uh, two years ago, and someone showed up with a copy of the first edition to get me to to sign it, okay? Um, So, um, you know, we're very lucky in that the impact that the book has had. And so I'm proud of the fact that we've had 
you know, given how hard it is to change people's behaviors and perceptions, particularly when people's, you know, have you know, built in sort of biases uh, that they've been, you know, following for a long time, uh, I think we've made a lot of progress over the 30 years in uh, convincing companies to uh, focus on return on capital and growth as the key drivers of value. And I uh, have no doubt because, again, it sort of seems like the gold standard. You do work for a firm that has a, a certain uh, cachet as well. That, uh, And I do recall going through the various training programs and running across this. Unfortunately, I, I do not have my uh, earlier version uh, with me. You know, it's, it's a point I think you make in the introduction, uh, but it, it's worth pointing out. We are engaged in an art that is at most 130 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, you referenced Marshall, 1890. I started with him in some work that I did. And you go through briefly some of the other uh, mid 20th century uh, developments uh, in in uh, the work of valuation, defining the value of particularly corporations. But it's striking to me that for call it several thousand years, you probably know Bill Goldsmith at Yale. Uh, you call it three or four thousand years of recorded economic activity, including a lot of what we consider modern finance. Uh, that the codification of value. Um, is 130 years old if you start with Alfred Marshall or even uh, younger if you start with uh, in the early 20th century, uh, Irving Fisher or so forth. And, and so, uh, you know, these are exercises that have been occurring to some extent for thousands of years, but uh, we only, you know, we, we only have these guideposts now. And so you're, uh, you know, you're in the, I, I would say from a historical perspective, still in the building stages of, uh, of uh, and this is an early stage exercise of, creating uh, guidelines for, for people to think about, even though it's been uh, going on for, uh, for, for 30 years. Yes, that's correct. But we are making um, progress. So that's, you that's, are making progress. That's, that's a good part about it. So, And I think you're really going to get to the tipping point in the next 30 years. I really, I, th- I think for, for, you know, volume, uh, volume, what will be, it'll be uh, the 14th edition. I think it's going to finally edition, push you, push you over the top. There is a lot. Uh, and I'm sure this was not in, in, the first edition, um, you know, there's a fairly robust critic- criticism or discussion of shareholder capitalism as opposed to stakeholder capitalism. And I'm, I'm surmising that's not really in, in some of the earlier uh, versions. Uh, and um, it's very topical uh, right now. And, uh, you know, you, you very timely fashion managed to Put a number of chapters in there that, that deal with these issues, particularly digitalization and ESG. Mm-hmm. You want to comment on on those specificities as you comment. The book came out in the period of the, the classic raiders, mm-hmm. your uh, version one. This version is coming out in the period where the shift from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism and how that might play out in in the numbers uh, and in the valuation exercise. I think that's a really important point. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, I think just it, it's an interesting little tidbit is that um, uh, one of my early mentors was in the, in, in, in the New York office of McKinsey was uh, was Dutch. And the Dutch system of uh, corporate governance has always been stakeholder oriented. And um, in the second edition of the book, I actually wrote um, uh, as I was transitioning from New York to the Amsterdam office. Right. And so I spent, you know, er, you know the, the late 90s in Europe um, uh, looking at and, and, and experiencing how people thought about it there. So there was already the debate in Europe before there was a debate in the U.S. So we did actually reflect it 
much earlier on because this debate was happening in Europe and Europe was for McKinsey was a, almost as big as it, as it was in the U.S. Uh, so mm-hmm. it, was, it was an important issue for us, for us uh, way back then as well. And so we, we, we began to talk about it a little bit in the first, more in the second and third edition. Um, uh, but, but now um, this issue of stakeholder versus shareholder clearly has you know, come into the forefront. It's in the news. It's in the, it's in the more popular press all the time now. Um, uh, when we look at it, though, we, 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 we find that the, first off, we have to distinguish between is there a conflict be, between uh, stakeholders, between shareholders and stakeholders, or is there a conflict between creating value for the long-term investors or the short-term investors? And I think when you define it, when you look at it from that element, it's very easy for a company to fool the market in the short term, right? Because the market has, investors have a limited amount of information. Plenty of ways that a company can goose up their earnings for two, three, four, five years, right? And get their share price to go up, right? And that may satisfy some of the short-term investors. Uh, But if you're doing that by skimping on product development or reducing product quality or not doing enough branding work or or whatever, eventually people will notice that, right? Uh, Your customers in particular will notice that. If 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 you don't treat your suppliers right, people will notice that and it will make it more difficult when you want to renegotiate. So what we have found is that for the most part, companies that satisfy their stakeholders, particularly their customers, their employees, and their suppliers do a much better job in creating value over the, over the longer term. Plenty of examples of companies that have not done those things. Plenty of examples of companies that have taken shortcuts on safety, for example, in order to save a few dollars and it blows up on them sometimes literally a couple of years later, right? Um, uh, companies that short take shortcuts on the environment and it'll come back to, to haunt them later on. Um, so uh, the, 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 the conflict is not as stark as it's often presented, right? It, it is starker if you say, well, I wanna maximize today's share price for a group of investors who are going to be in and out of the shares versus I want to maximize my share price for those shareholders who will be in it for the next three, four, five years, right? I have to make a choice as a manager. I can't do both, right? And so we would argue that you're always going to have shareholders, so better focus on the ones who own it for the longer term or who will be buying it later on for the longer term. Focus on those longer term shareholders that will then generally lead you to focus on innovation, product quality, customer service, have happy employees, good relationships with suppliers in order, in order to get there. And of course, good relations with regulators and a good safety record. All those things are, are important. Now, there are some situations where that rule doesn't necessarily work. The question is how how much profit should a company earn? Should a company that is able to charge a very good premium for its products, uh, we've talked about this in, 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 I think, in, the, in, in this edition or the last edition, a company like Apple Computer with the iPhone, um, you know, they charge a premium product for that, right? 
uh, premium price for the product, uh, and and their and their satisfied customers are willing to pay that premium price. Now the question is, if you say, well, we should try to satisfy all of your stakeholders, what is the right price? Now economic theory says if you're trying to satisfy your shareholders, you set the price at the amount that maximizes your revenues or your or, or your profits, right? Um, and your customers will be happy, and your shareholders will be will be happy as well. Now they could lower the price. Uh, their customers might be happier, but you know, should they lower the price? And if so, how much should they lower it? So there's no guidepost unless you have a long-term shareholder value creation perspective. Should you pay your employees more than than is necessary than, than competitive wages? Uh, all these kinds of difficult questions aren't answered by the shareholder versus stakeholder debate. If you took it to an extreme and said, you know, we're only going to earn our cost of capital and anything above our cost of capital as a company, we're going to give it back to our employees, to our customers, to our suppliers. Um, that company probably wouldn't attract any capital. Uh, and by the way, it wouldn't attract very talented management. It wouldn't be innovative, et cetera. So you do have to have uh, uh, some opportunities for the shareholders to, to, to create value for the shareholders in order to encourage innovation, in, in order to encourage risk-taking, in order to keep the uh, the best employees happy, the best talent happy. Uh, and that also leads typically to more satisfied uh, customers and more satisfied suppliers uh, and, and a better situation for the, uh, for the, for the, for the community as well. Um, and so we're back. Go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. We're, we're back really to this, this, as I mentioned, it's kind of on every page because I think it, it belongs on every page is, the battling, uh, the tread, I think you referred to it as the treadmill in regard to the stock market, but the, the battle with near-termism. Yeah. Let me ask you, based on your practice and on both this book, but also your, your your ongoing practice of trying to communicate this type of management strategy, uh, publicly traded companies are structurally at a disadvantage to try to do what you're doing. Privately held companies have a greater shot at doing it. Is it have you empirically observed that the privately held companies get closer to your ideal of management than publicly traded ones because of the near-termism that is just endemic to the public markets? Um, I, uh, that's a good way of putting it. And I would argue that it, 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 there are public companies that are long-term oriented, that are private companies that are short-term oriented. It really depends, right? Uh, although we have done some, one of my colleagues has done some research uh, working with uh, private equity-owned companies and found that the managers of private equity-owned companies would say that they're allowed to do things that they don't think that they could do if they were publicly listed, things that are complex to explain or a little longer-term oriented, right? Um, so there is some truth to that. On the other hand, I've seen privately-owned companies that are very short-term oriented because they've got the wrong kind of private equity owner. So not all private equity owners are the same. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we should, for the audience's sake, distinguish between private equity, which is a leveraged <laughs> leveraged buyout, restructure, five years and out, and small p, small e, perhaps family-controlled companies or just stable private ownership, which could be in it for decades. Uh, because in many ways, I don't consider private equity be, to, to be long-term at all. They are out of sight, but they have a time horizon, which isn't much longer than that of the public markets. Uh so I, I think uh, it's almost public equity uh, uh, on one hand, along with, and again, this is unfair, but I'm going to go with it anyhow, private private equity writ large, both together in the short-termism camp, and then 
privately held businesses, maybe family, but privately held businesses that have the luxury of long-term strategic planning. Is that is that a little bit too cartoonish? It, well, in a way, I I I I'm, I I would have thought that as well uh, until I started doing some work for some family-owned businesses. Uh, and, and what I discovered is it often depends on what generation of the family you're talking about, right? Um, you know, the founders tend to be much more long-term oriented, uh, but some of the bigger companies that have been around for, for generations where the man or the family isn't as involved anymore, even though it's long-term capital, uh, the behavior tends to be short-term oriented, partly because it's not that the capital isn't patient. It's that the, the board of directors just, doesn't know enough to judge the management team, which is not family members, based on anything other than the short-term results. Um, and so we see bad behavior and good behavior regardless of the forms of ownership. Uh, I remember talking to an executive in the UK who had been the CEO of one of the largest public companies in the UK. He, he was also the CEO of a company that was owned by a private equity firm. And he said, well, as a, as a listed company, I had a series of five one-year plans. And as a private equity-owned company, um, it was one five-year plan, right? And I could do things, you know, what mattered is where I got to over five years as opposed to what I did in the first year, right? Um, and so it's, I'm, I'm, I do, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to, uh, you know, there is a little, there's a, there is certainly a, a, a fair amount of truth to your characterization, but there are enough exceptions uh, that, you know, you don't want to sort of automatically assume that all family-owned companies are long-term oriented and all private equity firm uh, uh, companies are short-term oriented, uh, and that all publicly company held companies are, are, are short-term oriented. Although I am disappointed oftentimes when I, you know, work with some publicly listed companies at the decisions that they make in their focus, uh, because they believe that they have to satisfy uh, what they call the market, right? Uh, and what they don't realize is that we did some to back of the envelope numbers. In a typical U.S. large company, about 75%, 75 of, the, of the investors are long-term oriented. You've got the retail investors who are pretty much buy and hold. You've got the index funds and about half of the institutional investors. And then you've got 25% of the investors who are the shorter term head, you know, the, the trading oriented funds, right? But they're the ones who make all the noise, right? They're the ones who ask all the questions on the quarterly calls or their representatives, the sell side analysts do. Um, and um, so sometimes managers, I find, get the perception that they represent the market, but they don't represent the market. One of the things we try to do sometimes is to link up um, company managements and boards with sophisticated long-term institutional investors and sit down and have them talk about what's important to these long-term investor, to these institutional investors. Uh, and we've done surveys and we've done statistical analysis. We did a survey of long-term institutional investors. Um, and these are big name firms uh, that, that have that, that are that are very sophisticated. Uh, they've got fairly, uh, they, but but their holdings tend to be long term. We said, well, what's important? What's not important? What was not important at the lower end of the scale was 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 meeting or beating the consensus EPS. Right? They think that that can be a bad habit for companies. And we've talked to them and we've interviewed them about this. Right? And you refer to this as the treadmill in your book about once a company gets onto the 
that treadmill, it actually becomes very, very hard to get off of it. And you, you're playing and losing an expectations game because you, uh, you, you have to avoid uh, each time you beat expectations, you raise expectations for the next quarter. And it, it just, it ends in tears almost all the time. Yeah. But, um, what we find is that, um, that these investors understand that there are forces outside of your control that, 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 you, that will affect your earnings that you shouldn't necessarily try to control. Take currency rates. A typical, um, let's say, U.S. pharmaceutical company, uh, or maybe a better example would be a, a consumer packaged goods company or beverage company. Um, That's based in Atlanta and makes fizzy drinks and only has about a quarter of its revenues in North America. A lot of, you know, a lot of these companies generate, you know, 60, 70, 80% of their profits outside the U.S., right? And exactly. one of the things that happens is that exchange rates change, right? They have no control over exchange rates. Exchange one year, they go one way, one year, they go, one year they're going to go the next, right? Um, when you talk to investors, uh, sophisticated investors, they understand that management doesn't control and can't predict interest rate uh, exchange rates, and they don't want management to worry about that. They evaluate; tend, they tend to focus on their evaluation on a constant currency basis, for example. Um, and so they're gonna they're gonna say, well, yeah, if the exchange rate moves against you, maybe the share price is gonna be a little bit lower. Uh, but we don't expect you as a management team to have been able to forecast that. And we don't want you to try to take actions because we know you can't forecast it, right? So we're just going to ride with that volatility, right? We're okay with that volatility because over the long term, we believe in the business model. We believe that you'll be able to earn a high return on capital and achieve a certain uh, uh, amount of growth. So it's, 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 what's, what's not good is when companies take heroic actions to meet the consensus earnings that hurt them in the longer term. Uh, Selling a building at the end of the quarter is a classic one. We see yeah. that all the time. One story I heard that was oh, – go ahead, sorry. No, no, no go. go. Tell your story. Uh, one one fascinating one was that there was a, uh, a company that um, had a big operation in um, – this is a, a number of years back in, in, in Russia. It was doing extremely well. Um, uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine. Um, and there were shanks engine pose at the same, around the same time oil prices fell. So the Russia business declined considerably in a very short period of time, in a period of a couple of months. Um, their reaction to this was to cut their spending in Southeast Asia, which is one of their hottest growth markets, right? In order to meet their short-term earnings targets. Um, and whenever I've mentioned that story to investors, they all sort of shake their head and think this is crazy, right? Um, take your medicine, you know, you don't, you couldn't have controlled what happened to Russia. Right. Uh, and, but, you know, don't cut your investment in Southeast Asia because that's the future. Uh, and, you know, this company was cutting, you know, was under the wrong impression that the market would react mechanically, uh, to the short-term earnings and not look at, uh, try to understand what was going on and what was driving them and what was good and what was bad, what was under their control and what wasn't. Uh, and led to decisions that, you know, ultimately will hurt them over the time because they will lose market share in Southeast Asia because they're not investing enough. In the, in the interest of full disclosure, because we didn't really discuss this before uh, we, we started recording, I have to tell you, uh, I basically am one of those investors that is a long term, mm-hmm. uh, at least and tries to be, and has little reaction to quarterly results, but often feels compelled to communicate to the companies after the quarterly results saying, hey, you know, listen to the call, all that's fine, but you know, it's not what's motivating us. We do have our eye 
mm-hmm. on the on the long term, and I, we just remind the companies that we're yep. there. We're on the shareholder list, but we're yep. we're not necessarily on the calls. We're not at the conferences. We're not jostling for one on ones. Uh, because we are trying to maintain that long-term focus. But uh, right. as you correctly say, the management just has the hedge funds are buzzing around their ears and that's all they hear or see. So we do try to try to uh, periodically uh, uh, get in front of the companies and just say, hey, let's take a deep breath. We're yep. also a shareholder. By the way, we're a shareholder for a very long period of time. And uh, it is probably, not always, but probably the case that what the hedge fund is telling you that we take the opposite view. So just well, so you know, yeah. we're here. One of the things that I, we, one of the things that we do quite regularly is meet with management teams to talk about um, their investors and their investor communications. We also meet with new C, whenever our clients have a new CEO or a new CFO, we'll often sit down with them to talk about, uh, you know, concepts in the book uh, and other concepts about what it's like to be a new CEO or a new CFO. Uh, and one of the things that I always tell, um, the new CEOs and new CFOs about investor community, about working with investors, find 10 to 15 of your top long-term investors like you, right? And develop relationships with them, right? Tell your story to them, listen to them. And if you do that, it'll give you more courage to make the long-term decisions, but you have to force yourself to reach out to the investors, to listen to those investors, because if you're passive and you just listen to, read the sell side reports or listen to people who call you up, you'll get the wrong impression about who's out there and what matters to them. So you have to be proactive as a CFO and the CEO in reaching out to investors and understanding which ones matter and what they're thinking and not what the noisier ones are thinking. Uh, I'm into that. Um, again, we're, we're on the same, I'm disturbed that we're on the same side of an issue. Uh, so let's, let's get back to something we can disagree on. Uh, in the remaining few minutes, I just want to uh, highlight, you know, there is a lot of, so the first, call it half of the book, it, it raises a lot of big issues uh, concerning valuation and approach. So roughly speaking, the second half of the book gets to the practicalities of how you do it. It's almost like a manager's handbook of thinking about projects, and financing, and there are chapters on taxation and currency and, and leverage and, and all sorts of uh, things. One of the, the most striking, which I think would surprise even readers not uh, involved in finance, and if there are any readers not in finance listening at 38 minutes and 25 seconds of this interview on a textbook on valuation, we applaud you. Uh, one of the great uh, points that you make, however, and I've observed, is that the financial statements which public companies produce and which effectively private companies of any size also produce and which are highly regulated according to generally accounted uh, accounting, generally accepted accounting principles, were actually, you know, they are also subjective and they are, were chosen and agreed upon by some board of wise people at some point in time. But in order to get to where you like to be in terms of ROIC plus growth and uh, proper DCF and uh, economic value calculation, kind of the nuts and bolts of what you do, you actually have to uh, restate uh, much of the financial statements. I think that's a kind of a surprise. People would assume that if a financial statement exists, it's probably a good thing. But I, I thought it quite fascinating that, that uh, you know, the extent to which you basically want everyone to start all over again. That Maybe that's too strongly stated, but they have to make a lot of adjustments to the financial statements. Without getting too much into the weeds, though, can you just comment on this notion that 
you know, the documents is presented to you, the investor or the manager may not be the documents that you actually need to make the best long-term decision. Mm-hmm. Um, that is correct. You have to, you have to take them apart. And we find that the longer term investors, the more sophisticated are doing the same thing. They're taking apart and really understanding and, and crafting those financial statements into something we would consider to be more economically representative. And what we typically mean by that is separating out the operating from the non-operating and the pure accounting things from those which things which really affect cash flows. And the rewarding thing, though, about this, it is still frustrating that we make all these adjustments, right? But over the 30 years, some of the adjustments that we've made, we don't have to make anymore because the accounting rules have moved in the direction that we've been advocating for a long time. Mm-hmm. Most recently has been the capitalization of operating leases, which is something that we have been doing. And the, by the way, the credit rating agencies have been doing it forever uh, as well for the entire you know 30 years that we've had this book out there. Right. Uh, it's an asset that you're using and it's a debt when you enter into an operating lease. Uh, one of the things that we've been ad- advocating long uh, for a long time is uh, when it comes to defined benefit pension plans is to really separate out the components of income and expense that are operating versus non-operating. A lot of the volatility, I know one company that, you know, from year to year, their earnings would go up or down by more than 10% because of changes in the valuation of the pension liabilities, which had nothing to do with the operations of the business. Um, And what's happened, and finally, what that company started to do was issue non-GAAP statements, right? Uh, where they adjusted for those things. And now the, the accounting uh, bodies have changed their rules so that the pension uh, expenses it, it effectively is separated into an operating and a non-operating component, especially IASB is much more uh, consistent with this than FASB. But the accounting rules have begun to change. Rece- a couple of years back, we did a quick look. I looked at the top 50 companies uh, in the U.S. by size, and almost every single one of them issued non-GAAP, issued some kind of non-GAAP reporting because the GAAP reporting just isn't that useful to investors the way it's done right now. So it's kind of a sad state where the, 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 the decision makers, you know, aren't really looking at what the companies and investors are doing, right? They're saying we're coming up with these theoretical rules, but no one is using the financial statements as they are presented. They're, everyone is making adjustments. Uh, and some of those adjustments are more negative than others. That is, you're, you're referring to yeah, positive it, adjustments. It, but there it, are plenty well, of adjustments that are made that are, our companies are kind of distorting their, their near-term results to make them look better as well. Sometimes, sometimes. But what we found is that, and I remember talking to years ago, one of the internet, when there was a debate about whether stock options should be expensed. And I remember one of the top uh, securities analysts uh, who covered internet stocks said, I don't really care whether you expense them or not. As long as you give me the information, I'm going to create, I'm going to look at it the way I want to look at it. And a lot of sophisticated investors are that way. They're going to create their own, you know, just give them, whether you put the information on the face of the income statement or the balance sheet or put it in the footnotes, they don't care. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to figure it out. Right. Um, And so, you know, that's essentially what we've ended up with uh, is a situation where, you know, there are these accounting rules, people have to follow them. But people more and more, the communication between investors and companies is much more on a non-GAAP basis. So, you know, you're, you've spent, and it's, it's five, 600 pages, uh, 700 pages uh, of laying out these, these guidelines in, in, in the book. And, and 
in a structured sort of empirical pattern. It's not all formulas. It's not all uh, difficult formulas, but but pretty you know uh, firmly stated guidelines that are mathematical or empirical in nature. And uh, working against the noise of the market, working against uh, financial statements that aren't structured to communicate that, among many other challenges as well. But you end what I thought was a fascinating note, and uh, it it highlights more the strategy end rather than the accounting end. As as hard as you and, and maybe others in a less sophisticated manner trying to get to some sort of empirical truth, you, you do point out, and it's, it's kind of core to a strategy consulting business, at the end of the day, you're going to be making some subjective choices in strategy. However much you dress them up in data, um, it it's, can be hard. You're going to be making choices, uh, decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. And, and the metaphor that you use is, you know, do you bet on the horse or do you bet on the jockey? Do you bet on the business or the leader? Mm-hmm. Uh, and one without the other creates risk, but sometimes you like the leader, you don't like the business. Sometimes you like the business, you're not so certain about the uh, the the, uh, the leader. And you 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 know, business people are forced to make choices when they have imperfect information, even if they have a really well detailed, seven hundred page, really comprehensive guide to decision making. At the end of the day, it comes to a highly subjective choice. Is that is that an unfair statement? Uh, not at all. Uh, uh, I think there's a lot of attempts at false precision, right? Um, w- when I'm concerned about it, what a company's cost return on capital, I don't care whether it's 13 or 13 and a half. I care whether it's 13 or 25, right? Um, uh, so um, it, a, a lot of this is still trying, you know, you know, while we do try to get good measurements of typically historical performance, right? We realize that there's limits on what the numbers can tell you. So we want order of magnitude. Uh, but also we have to, when you, you know, it's about the future as well. And so the fundamental question is, you know, are those, ca- why is a company able to generate that return on capital and that growth? And what does that mean for the future? Does it have the, the products uh, that are going to be attractive going forward? Is it investing enough in product development? Um, does it have a good cost structure uh, relative to its peers? And it's going to be able to earn a, a have a, have a good cost per unit so that it can make a good profit on each unit. Um, all those things you have to ask about, you know, from a, from a qualitative perspective as well. The numbers are helpful because, they, you know, by forcing you to put themselves down, sometimes you just, it's often better to do it the other way around even, right? What do you have to believe to come up with a certain valuation uh, is another technique that we can use. Because you're right, there is no no one can predict the future, uh, and so it, it is about using the numbers more as a way to think about um, uh, the, the 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 possibilities and come up with a consistent set of, of forward looking and, and and see what the implications are before you uh, in order to help you make decisions. I think Yoga Berra got that uh, something about the difficulty of forecasting, especially about the future. We do have, by the way, a chapter on trying to make that very uh, subjective art a little bit uh, uh, more uh, digestible and so forth. The book is uh, Valuation. It's the seventh edition, Measuring and Managing the Value of Companies. Tim Kohler, thank you so much for, for being my guest. This is a a really, this is a, it's an expensive book. It is has a list price of $95. However, if you think about as a manager or an investor, the stakes that are involved in getting these questions right or wrong, 
the issues that are raised in the book are worth, uh, frankly, a, a great deal, uh, a great deal more than that. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Daniel. It's uh, I've enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. As have I.